Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Pacific Century, the Hoover Institution's podcast on America, China, and the struggle for the 21st century. I'm joined with my ever faithful co-host, Misha Oslin, fellow at the Hoover Institution, longtime friend and colleague. Hi, Misha. How have you been? I've, I'm sorry I've missed the last two episodes. People probably thought that you had staged a coup, much like other potential political leaders in the United States, and I've been deposed from my co-host perch. John, people are still they're demanding a recount of the votes <laughs> for this for this podcast. They're saying, what what happened to John? There's been fraud because he, he hasn't been on for the past couple. And we missed you. We had some we know the oh, you know, times great. are tough. Uh, you're busy. Uh, I see right now our viewers can't that uh, our listeners that you have a tie, which means you're doing something important. Um, <laughs> so we uh, but we had we had some good interviews. We had the commander of Pacific Air Forces on, uh, which was a really interesting interview. And I think we had we had another one too that i can't remember but it's, it's, it wasn't the same so glad you're back with us especially because we have a fantastic guest today in fact we need two of us to handle this guest there's no question about it because we are honored to be joined by tom tugendhat um who is by the way i should say properly lieutenant colonel Tom Tugendhat, MP, who is a member of parliament and the chairman of the Foreign Affairs Committee in the House of Commons. But more than that, he's a friend to so many of us who work on, uh, in general, foreign affairs issues, but in particular, issues related to China. Tom has been a member of parliament since 2015, so he's in his uh, going in his fifth year. Uh, But before that, he was in the territorial army, he was a territorial army officer in the British Army, served in both Iraq and Afghanistan, and now uh, as I mentioned, serves as the chairman of the Foreign Affairs Committee uh, and also the chairman of the China Research Group, which we're going to get to. But first of all, Tom, welcome to the Pacific Century. Misha, what a pleasure to be with you. And I'm very glad you haven't had John deposed and executed and buried in some car park somewhere. It's, uh, it's good that... Uh, <laughs> It's good that such practices are now banned. We are, yeah, we are. You, you really, know, you know far too much about American politics. For... <laughs> <laughs> that's I, right, just, we were... I just followed the Teamsters. <laughs> right, we, we were going to have the. Uh, that's right, we were going to have the Teamsters edition uh, with John, wondering where is John every week. But luckily, he's back symbolically uh, on the desk. But, but we, yeah, but you know, we're we're such an unrevolutionary people, except just once, and so you know, we really don't go for these types of depositions or or radical regime changes. Uh, And in fact, according to many people, what we're doing right now is going back to the way things have been for quite some time. And the big question for us, of course, is does that mean it's the same? It's going to be the same old story about China. We've talked a lot on the podcast about um, uh, not only China's own development. You know, we've had Ron Amitter on and we've had um, a bunch of folks who, you know, who know China deeply inside and out. Um, But we've talked of course, for the past several years about the Trump administration's approach and and trying to understand what they've done. And so we're particularly interested to talk with you uh, about the UK, about UK policy to China, um, uh, you know, the drama over Huawei and and questions over uh, things that we face, you know, influence campaigns. But we know that in particular, you have dealt with it uh, in part through the institution of of the China Research Group. So maybe you could tell us on this side what the China Research Group is. Um, let us know a little bit about the state of play uh, on China policy in the UK. And then we'd love to switch to talking about a report that you and the China Research Group just released this week. 
Sure. Well, look, the group uh, was supposed to be set up in sort of late last year, but then we had a, a few things came up, including a leadership challenge, a new, uh, you know, more Brexity issues, and then a general election, which really meant that our attentions were elsewhere. So we got round to it in January, uh, February this year. And we've set up, um, this is a colleague of mine, Neil O'Brien, uh, and I have set up uh, the China Research Group in order to really be better informed on China. I mean, one of the things that strikes really struck us both was if you asked most MPs who the Secretary of State of the United States or the Foreign Minister of France was, you'd, you'd have a pretty good chance of getting the right answer. If you asked the same question about China, you'd have a very low chance of getting the right answer. And and so not neither neither for nor against any Chinese position or any position on China, we set it up in order to really uh, help people to know a little bit more about what's going on. Now, I'm not surprised that when people become a little bit more informed, they uh, get a bit concerned because you know, you've spoken about you know, having Rana Mitra on your show and I, I listened to it and, you know, he, he makes very persuasive and I think uh, incredibly strong arguments as to why there are strong elements of concern uh, as to the direction of China's travel at the moment. And unsurprisingly, that's something that's uh, shared by many MPs. And indeed, it's, uh, it's it, one of the reasons we uh, sought better information so that people could realize what was going on. So I have to say, um, one of the things that you, well, before we get to that, I was going to talk about the newsletter you guys send out, which I actually find very useful. And, and I don't know if anyone can sign up for it or it's just yeah, anybody of us who are personal friends of Tom, Tom T can sign up. It's really a, a, a great compilation, quite frankly, of, of, uh, interesting, uh, pieces, uh, on China. I, I, I have noticed there haven't been any Oslin U pieces yet, but nonetheless, we're, we're hoping that we understand it's early days. Um, what, um, first of all, who are, who, who's the membership of the CRG? Um, and, and what is the level of China knowledge? As you said, you, you would have less uh, chance of getting someone who would know who the Chinese foreign minister is. But are, are you China experts? Are you China, uh, uh, I don't want to say dilettantes like the rest of us, we're all dilettantes, but are you, who, who is it that's the CRG and why is it important? So this, the CRG really is a collection of conservative MPs who are not experts. But the reason we set it up uh, was not because we thought we could produce massive amounts of expert China knowledge. We knew we couldn't. So what instead we decided to do is to uh, find out who the best were and to share their reports, share their articles and so on. Now, you know, you'll notice in, in quite a lot of the, uh, the the stuff that we put out, very obviously most of the most of the copy is is links to news stories uh, from around the world. That's because that's the nature of most of the information. But we also share uh, reports. You know, the ECFR put out really good stuff. There's a, a lady by the name of Yanka Ortel who puts out excellent stuff. There's you know there's people in the Bertelsmann Group. You know, there are people around the world. There's Aspie in Australia. Rory Metcalf is one of the professors there. You know. And we share those as well. We share links to those because what we're trying to do is to improve knowledge. Now, actually, we realized pretty early on that uh, there was no point in trying to keep anything secret, as I suspect. There may be some people in uh, other countries who would try and get in there anyway. So everything we do is public. Uh, anybody can sign up for any of it. And though we are a conservative, uh, we're a bunch of conservative MPs. So, of course, we're, we're you know conservative minded in that sense. You know, we have Labour uh, members subscribing to our newsletter. We have uh, people from around the world. And if anybody wishes to, you're very welcome to join us. Just go to chinaresearchgroup.org. That's the website or at China Research GP uh, on Twitter. And, and you'll find us there and, you know, do sign up. 
Yeah, it, it's funny you mention. Um, as you were mentioning, I was thinking it, it's it is a relatively small community. Um, Yanka Hotel, uh, you know, we these are people we all know, uh, and and Rory uh, Metcalf in Australia. In fact, we should probably have both of them on the show, John. Yeah, you should at some point. Um, we we have reached out. It's believe me, you know, we've got three different time zones now. You throw in Australia, and one of us is going to be up in the middle of the night. So we 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 do what we can. It's always uh, the Australian who's up in the middle of the night. It's my experience. <laughs> always the Australian. My, why you guys set up a prison colony there is beyond me. <laughs> well, because no one else wanted to stay up in the middle of the night in, in London, obviously. I, I wanted to ask one question before we get to the report, which is interesting. You mentioned that the CRG is a Tory group. Um and why there's no labor uh, folks involved or Lib Dems. And it's interesting because, of course, in the U.S. Congress, and I know you know Mike Gallagher, whom we had on right, the show right, a few yeah. months ago, um, he is part of the um, the China study group in the U.S. Congress, which was also only Republicans. The Democrats didn't sign on. And, and I found that interesting, especially given trade issues. So was there a reason that it's just um, folks from the Tory side? The reason the reason's terribly boring. It's just easier to set up single party groups. So we did. And, and, and as I say, the whole thing's public anyway. So actually, I can tell you there's an awful lot of Labour people who sign up to the newsletter, who attend our meetings. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's not that uh, I know, uh, obviously, everything conservative is, is good and everything Labour is bad. But I have to say, Stephen Kinnock is a fantastic uh, Shadow Asia spokesman. And, and if you, you know, he and the Shadow Foreign Secretary, Lisa Nandy, and I, I mean, you could barely put a cigarette paper of difference between us on on China policy and and, and concerns that we have, uh, and you know they both very regularly attend our events. And I mean, the reality is, we're conservative because it's easier, but yeah. not in you know. No, I get I get that, and and actually, you're right. Stephen Kinnock, another person we should have on the show, was fascinating. I interviewed him for the uh, the policy exchange report that I was uh, part of and, and was writing at the time, and he was just really impressive uh, as as the shadow. Is he the shadow foreign minister or just for Asia? No, he's the shadow Asia minister. Asia minister, yeah. Uh, and of course, in in the UK, and I, I want to use this to segue into the report uh, that you guys just released. Let me. I, I need to pull it up because I do have it right here, so I can reference it appropriately. Um, uh, I don't know where it is. I'll find it in a second. Here we go. Um, so the UK has has begun. Uh, well, you're undergoing what's called an integrated review. Integrated review. It's a little bit like our national security strategy review. Uh, it's being run out of the prime minister's office, and again, our common friend John Bew is is uh, largely in charge of it. But but there's a lot of changes on the UK side. I don't know if. All of our listeners are aware of the the Foreign and Commonwealth Office has now become the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office. Uh, there is a new uh, head for the Indo-Pacific. There was never an Indo-Pacific head in the FCO. There's a new Indo-Pacific head in addition to the, the traditional Asia heads. Uh, and there are at least reports, and, and certainly I, I believe from what I understand, that there will be a, a strategy for the Indo-Pacific coming out of the FCDO, or at least to represent the government. So just in time, you and the, the uh, China Research Group have uh, released a report called Defending Democracy in a New World a toolkit of policy options for responding to a more assertive Chinese Communist Party. 
Um, again, this is available uh, through the China Research Group, and I encourage everyone to go uh, and look at it. Um, uh, I'd like to ask you about it. Just let the folks know you've you've divided it into three parts. So the first part dealing with human rights, uh, the second part information disinformation campaigns, and the third part economics. So normally in the U.S. we'd probably start with security. Uh, we'd look at other political issues, and then eventually we'd get you know to the economics and, and human rights. Um, but can you tell us a little bit about what the report? Uh, why you felt you needed to come out with a report and what are the, the main conclusions? Cause you have a very strong and interesting conclusions uh, or, or recommendations section. Sure. Well, look, uh, one of the, one of the issues that we've all had is that frankly, the way that we have uh, dealt together with China has been pretty disjointed, you know, for a long time, Britain was going through what um, I think now rather oddly is referred to as the golden era where uh, David Cameron and George Osborne were much uh, closer to uh, Beijing than uh, I think now would be considered wise. But then again, it was a different time. Uh, Australia as well was very much more uh, economically tied. The United States was uh, in a different position. I mean, it was certainly coming around to, um, by the end of the Obama administration, you're starting to see the beginning of the uh, the position that, that, that President Trump took, but but it's still early days. And now it's unimaginable that the Biden administration would go back to a sort of, you know, Obama 20, whenever, you know, 2008 position. It, it's just not, not credible. So, you know, but we've all had a very different position. And then when you bring in Europe, you know, France has been in some ways tougher, in some ways uh, less so uh, with China, Germany again, you know, and, and so on. So what we wanted to do is to bring forward a few ideas that were the sort of things that, yeah, of course, this is for a British audience, but could be could be internationalised, as it were. So we start off with things like uh, a D10. Now, this is something the UK government's already talking about. Our view is that this is really the the, the first step. It's not a, it's not a final step. It's a first step towards a, an alliance of democracies. And I know President Biden, sorry, President Elect Biden, has spoken about this uh, as well. It's you know, it's not an original idea, but but we're reinforcing it because I think it matters. We talk about uh, Magnitsky-style sanctions that many of us have spoken about in the past. And, you know, China has uh, not had as much attention on this as others. And I know the United States has sanctioned Carrie Lam, for example. Uh, but there's more that uh, we should be looking at. And then we look at sort of other areas uh, like the Sino-British Joint Declaration and supporting individuals who should have been covered or should have had their rights guaranteed by that, but for various different reasons, uh, uh, national security law, the infringements of the basic law and things like that, uh, they're not. Uh, and so we we build up from that. And, the, you know, it's interesting the way you addressed it and you said security, economics, human rights, and we, we look at it the other way around. You, you know, I I think when we look at it the other way around, it's not that we don't think that security matters, it's that we think human rights is part of security. If you want uh, to have stable partners around the world, you need to make sure that their people are free and enjoy rights. You know, it, it's it's invariably dictatorships that are able to uh, be more dangerous than democracies, because democracies, funnily enough, have to serve the will of their people, which tends to be things like, you know, making sure their kids can go to school and that they have health care, rather than that they're brutalizing their neighbors or, or, or dominating uh, an economic corridor. So that's the way we started this off. And then there's, you know, because we're, uh, we're not quite uh, able to count, we ended up with a nine point plan instead of a 10 point plan. Um, but, the, uh, but the nine points uh, leave, I think, space for everybody to come up with their own 10th. So, uh, Tom, again, thanks for joining us. And so 
Um, I think um, maybe American listeners might not know, uh, I'm not meaning to say this to to flatter you, but how important you were <laughs> in the uh, what so many people are calling now, uh, you know, the, the real shift in British policy towards China. So uh, the Boris Johnson, before he's prime minister, is talking about how he thinks the Belt and Road Initiative is a great idea, right? And how uh, Britain, British diplomats used to say, you know, Britain was China's best friend in the West. And then, um, according to accounts, at least in the American press, and I think the European press, the turning point is uh, Britain's decision uh, to block Huawei from its uh, communica- communications infrastructure. And then if you dig a little deeper into accounts, your name keeps popping up as somebody who was uh, critical, uh, really critical in getting uh, and pressuring John, the prime minister and the cabinet to make that critical decision when, as, as we know, they weren't going to. So maybe... Uh, you could describe how that happened. You know, I mean, that's a people in America may not realize how significant it is for uh, the prime minister cabinet to change positions that swiftly uh, under pressure from their own uh, party. How did how did you make that happen? And then, I guess the second question is: Now that you've issued the report, what would be the next second symbolic step that Britain could take that you would like to show this new right this new approach towards China? Well, look, there's, uh, I mean, you know, it, it, as ever in politics, politics is actually a team game. And so there's often one one name, you know, but that doesn't mean that the person actually does Oh, that, that sounds like you're running for office now. Come on, give us the real answer. <laughs> the the reason you know office. that's a politician's answer is because that's the last thing Trump ever says. <laughs> <laughs> chairmanship of the committee in 2017, I thought I was going to build on the golden era stuff and work out ways in which Britain could help China reassert its place in the world in the, through the laws, you know, through the rules-based international order, building on things like the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank and so on. But within, quite literally within months of arrival, um, I was um, being, I mean, politely, but still bullied by the Chinese uh, embassy in uh, London and uh, was having demands made upon me, which I thought were frankly uh, wrong. I was being asked to silence members of the committee. I was asked to, to uh, say that certain members of the committee couldn't travel uh, to certain places or should reject previous uh, statements that they'd made about you know, Taiwan or Hong Kong or whatever. And every time I explained that that's not how this works in a democracy, that these people have an independent mandate and all I'm doing is chairing the committee, uh, it was quite made quite clear to me that this wasn't going to, um, you know, going to go well. Now, I'm afraid I didn't take that very well. I'm, uh, I don't take being bullied well. And um, I made it perfectly clear what my position was. And uh, I'm afraid the uh, relationship has degraded since then. Um, but the when this started, I was doing some work into how we could work with China. And it immediately became clear to me that we were engaging with a very, very fragile system. The erosion of human rights in Hong Kong means that any economic uh, construction on the top of that foundation is like building your house on sand. Because if you do not have rights, rights of association, rights of speech, rights of assembly, you're very quickly going to find that you don't have property rights either, and you don't have legal rights to guarantee your investments or your intellectual ideas. 
that those rights will also fall away. And so that got me thinking about what's going on in China and what do these investments mean. And funnily enough, actually, the connection was when we started doing some work on Russia, we did a report called Moscow's Gold. I think it was in May 2018. I may have got the date wrong, but it was around then. And it was about the Russian dirty money operating through UK law firms and estate agents and how, you know, whitewashing of, of, of dirty money was a, a problem for us. And I started to see Chinese investments in a similar way. Now, I don't mean that they're corrupt in the sense they're not coming from, you know, sort of mafia gangs like in the Kremlin, right? But but they are ways of exerting leverage and, and achieving uh, power through non-traditional means. And we started looking at universities as well. And it became clear to me that this is not something that we as a free country can tolerate and maintain our freedom. We can either have the money or we can have our freedom, but we can't have both. And frankly, one is rather more valuable than the other. Um, as, I, as I say about Hong Kong, there's no point in being the richest person in prison. And the, uh, and the real danger here for all of us is that that's where, we're, that's where we're heading in a different way. So I started to call it out. Now, two things really have, have changed, and I'm very pleased to say have changed since I started calling it out in 2017, 2018. The first you're right in saying is Huawei. Now, you know, many people have focused on the fact that Huawei is an intelligence threat or, you know, it's got various issues like that. It's partly true because, of course, it's much easier for a company Sorry, it's much easier for a country if they have built the architect, the architecture through which they're then trying to get at you. But let's not kid ourselves. You know, we're all on Zoom here. You know, we're we're talking to each other through pretty open networks. If if an intelligence agency from a major developed state wanted to spy on us, the fact that this is Apple technology in my we case, can, and, we can only hope so. That'll mean we'll get a million downloads in China. <laughs> <laughs> I think you may find it's one download and the rest aren't allowed. But the uh, but the um, but you know, we know that uh, we know that uh, developed networks, uh, sorry, developed countries can can spy on us through any network, pretty yeah. much. Yes. So what we're really talking about with Huawei is not that we're talking about the monopolistic status that that company is uh, being allowed to achieve through the various ways in which it is subsidised, and therefore the way it's actually undercutting and under uh, you know undermining our future abilities to grow our own economies and have our independent system. So it's a much longer, much bigger strategic game that we're playing uh, with Huawei and ZTE and, by the way, a few others as well. And so why we've got to be aware of it. But the second thing that I was very pleased to claim as a win, frankly, is something I've been campaigning for, for, well, again, since about 2017, 2018, which is uh, the recognition of the rights of British nationals overseas. Now, you may not realize or sorry many of your listeners may not realize but when hong kong was a british colony in the, in the old days members of you know people who were members of the british colonies around the world were citizens the same as citizens of the uk as citizens they were citizens don't of the United tell Kingdom that to colonies. Some, don't tell that to some americans they might still want to <laughs> <laughs> review the no, decision think- in 1776 if they find out they could get a british passport I think I think I think that they'll I think they'll be happy. I think they'll be happy with where they're going. But the um, but you know that used to be the system. And then 1984, when we uh, were looking at the handover of Hong Kong, um, there the status of Hong Kong was changed from citizens of the UK and colonies to uh, well to a few things, and it ended up being British nationals overseas, which didn't get the right of residence in the United Kingdom, which is a, a pretty odd thing to do for a British national. And I'm very glad that we've corrected that, and we've corrected that by giving um, five years. Uh, visa-free travel, uh, after which 
it's pretty easy to transfer it to full citizenship. So I'm very glad that those two fights that um, I have been part of, the, the second one, the Hong Kong fight, alongside many others, uh, including uh, some very, very impressive uh, activists from Hong Kong Watch and places like that. We, you know, we, we have, we've got to the right place. But the next thing that we've got to do, and you're right in asking, John, what is the next thing? The next thing is how on earth do we support the architecture uh, of the system that we've built over the last 70 years to make sure it isn't undermined? And this is where you know, you're absolutely right. When the Prime Minister was Foreign Secretary and he spoke to the committee about the Belt and Road Initiative and how it offered opportunity for the United Kingdom, many of us pushed back and said, you, you don't understand. You're sowing the seeds for our destruction by supporting these ideas. And he was very in favour of it. And I understand why, because it is an economic opportunity. And in some ways, you know, China is the new Rome. It is a truly global empire with, you know, genuine historic and cultural depth that very few others can match. Uh, and for those of us who are sort of concerned about it, it's not that we're trying to constrain or, 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 or harm China in any way. It's that the way in which the current Chinese state, Beijing, the Chinese Communist Party, are pushing growth is actually undermining the system that has lifted 850 million Chinese people out of poverty, that has allowed China to become the second and perhaps soon the major economic power in the world, and that has seen China change from, frankly, a broken pariah into a major respected uh, nation. And that was the direction it was going until General Secretary Xi. So we hope very much that we can find a way of uh, helping China get back on track. But that is about working together. That's well, about... Let me, um, before I turn it back to Misha, just to ask you a really uh, a question I think our, a lot of listeners in the U.S. would be very interested to hear about that you just mentioned as an aside, which was what China's been up to within the United Kingdom. You mentioned the embassy trying to bully members of parliament, and then you mentioned efforts to uh, fiddle with universities and research. And, of course, you've mentioned uh, you know economic ties. What? What has China been up to within the UK? I mean, Americans have similar concerns, but maybe we haven't seen it in such a high profile as uh, the way you've just mentioned. So, look, I, I mean, I, I've um, I've been speaking with the University of California. I've been speaking with university assistants in Sweden, in Australia, and we're all seeing the same stuff, right? I mean, we are all seeing exactly the same thing, which is we are seeing uh, students who are, frankly, coming from uh, sources that uh, should raise security concerns. We're also... Well, I mean, on one level, that's, you know, the fact that there are students uh, who are seeking to take knowledge back to their home country, that really shouldn't be seen as too much of a surprise. But what we're also seeing much more seriously is we're seeing uh, students undermining the freedoms that we value. And the reason, the way they're doing this is the Chinese state is organising pressure on uh, students overseas, that if they do not comply with the wishes of the Chinese state abroad, then their parents will be uh, in some way punished or they will be removed from their courses. And so what they do is they protest universities that want to discuss, for example, uh, water rights in Tibet. You know, things that you and I may think of as you know, human geography questions, not political questions, but simple human geography questions, maybe to do with climate change, maybe to do with salination of, uh, you know, paddy fields in eastern China or whatever. But these will be considered political. We will be silent, or sorry, the students will uh, lobby against and put pressure on universities to silence them. Uh, and if the universities do not comply, the universities will be threatened with having students withdrawn. Now, given that the Chinese 
students in the UK are the largest single foreign bloc, about 100 and something thousand students. You know, the withdrawal of students from some universities, and particularly those universities that have campuses in mainland China, can effectively be uh, a stranglehold, an economic stranglehold over academic freedom. And that is a real threat to the United Kingdom. And by the way, it's a threat to universities, some universities in the United States as well. So, Tom, let me um, take you back to uh, the report for a second. And in, in your box, you're right, it is a box of nine recommendations, not 10. So already you've thrown the Chinese off balance because they would expect 10. Uh, uh, and you've probably thrown us off balance a little as well. The, the, the seventh one uh, states, uh, and this is uh, you know a call, so it, it, the way you've written it, implementation of more stringent checks on the purchase of Chinese hardware and apps to reduce the CCP's ability to infiltrate UK agencies. Um, most people are going to be thinking about Huawei in, in relation to this. And I'd like to ask you, now that the Germans have decided to let Huawei in, um, and, and it sounds somewhat like under the conditions that the UK was going to before uh, the reversal of the decision, and the fact that Japan and South Korea have decided to let Huawei in, um, first, do you think Britain, do you anticipate Britain holding the line? Second, do you anticipate the U.S. holding the line? And how are you going to respond if it turns out that the Biden administration decides in order to dial down the temperature or or show good faith that they're going to revisit the Huawei uh, decision, which really broadens out into the whole question of how does Britain begin to think about responding to what a Biden administration might do? But maybe you can start with the Huawei part and then go but go beyond that. Sure, look, I mean, I think it would be an error. And, you know, the reason the UK didn't take Huawei and has got onto the path to zero in the bill that was introduced to Parliament on Monday, I think it was, is because it's the right thing to do for the United Kingdom. Now, I happen to think it would also be the right thing to do for other countries as well. But fundamentally, that's their problem. My problem is the United Kingdom. So I am focusing on what I can do something about. I hope that Germany will change its mind. I can't tell them to, but my opposite number in the German Bundestag at the Foreign Affairs Committee, Norbert Röttgen, and I speak often. And, um, you know, I'm not alone in Europe in calling for this. Pavel Fischer, my opposite number in the Czech Senate, also calls for this. You know, there are many other people uh, in uh, European parliaments uh, calling for the same thing. I'm sorry about Japan's decision. I I wish they hadn't done it, but I understand uh, that they have pressures. You know, we all have politics is local right uh, and so i very much hope that uh, president biden doesn't decide to do it it will be up to the united states to decide how uh, how they must act I, I don't suspect it's much of a danger i mean after all it was one of the few things that nancy pelosi and, and donald trump agreed about uh, during their time was was the need to deal with china and i think what i'd like to see us doing much more of in the future is looking at how we can make china policy work with other policy and you know these things like carbon pricing perhaps to recognize the actual cost of chinese manufacturing as opposed to the uh, the hidden cost and uh, working out better ways of onshoring jobs back back in you know the uk the us germany and whatever else because you know there's a huge huge number of ways in which we can make our china agenda and our, our environmental agenda or our human rights agenda or whatever align because they they do overlap but the question, the question about your, you know, that you raised about our, our, our point seven, the implementation of more stringent checks on the purchase of Chinese hardware, is, 
is really the recognition that what we're seeing here isn't a single route for influence. We're not seeing, you know, this isn't this isn't the corruption of you know local politicians or or or, or simply you know information operations. It's everything. It's everything all at once. And some of it is to do with investments. And this is why I'm very glad the UK government has finally introduced the National Security and Investment Bill, something that um, the committee I'm lucky enough to chair has been pushing for for the last three years, because we've needed a CFIUS-type system in the US or FERB in Australia in order to recognise that actually, you know, not all of these purchases are, are, are what you'd think of as sort of market purchases. They're actually ways of extracting leverage. And as, sadly, the world is likely to go through some form of a recession following this COVID crisis, the reality is that those companies that rely on market financing are going to most likely find it much harder to get finance than state-owned enterprises. This does mean that state-owned enterprises will be at an advantage. And we need to make sure that our companies don't find themselves simply being victims of hostile action. So let me, um, since we're uh, running up, we know it's it's late over in London and, and we're running up against a little uh, our time. We don't uh, try to go much beyond, you know, 45 minutes, 40 minutes or so. Let me ask you to take off whatever hat you wear in Parliament and put on your beret uh, and talk about the security. Now, you, you mentioned security a little bit earlier uh, when you talked about human rights as a part of security. And I think we, we certainly all uh, agree with that. I mean, what's happening in Hong Kong is probably one of the best examples uh, right now, and it's a it's a tragedy. I mean, people really have to understand that Hong Kong is is no longer the free territory, the free area that it was, and and we've got to you know we usually don't see changes so dramatically and so quickly. So uh, there's a lot that people still have to catch up on as to how Beijing is um, is changing the security equation in, in Asia. So I'd like to ask about the UK and security as we would more traditionally understand it. Um, you have a new aircraft carrier, the Queen Elizabeth. Uh, you actually put together a carrier strike group for the, the first one in Europe in uh, several decades, uh, maybe since the Falcons. I, I saw that was just a, a month ago or so. And of course, when the Queen Elizabeth was commissioned, the, the very first statement about it is that uh, you will, um, uh, you'll send her to the South China Sea uh, to help with freedom of navigation. So thinking more broadly, I'm just wondering the, the role that you, that you see um, as a professional military officer as well, that the UK can play in the Indo-Pacific. Is there a significant material role in upholding uh, traditional security? Or is that something where the US, you know, it, it's really still just going to be up to Washington, regardless of, of how well they can do it? No, I think it's something that the UK can really help with. Look, the Queen Elizabeth and the Prince of Wales, our two new aircraft carriers, uh, are both capable of carrying the F-35B variant. And uh, as you know, uh, that's becoming the standard aircraft for many of our allies, not just the United States and the UK, but actually also Australia and Japan. And I, I had a very interesting chat with the then uh, Japanese defence minister uh, a number of months ago, uh, who was very keen that uh, one of our carriers should uh, dock in Okinawa and have Japanese F-35s flying off it, not just because of the symbolism of it, but actually because Japan is wanting to have a more integrated role in its own defence. And I think it's a role that many of us would welcome. You know, Britain's, I mean, it's it's an odd thing to say, but Britain is still a Pacific power in an odd way. You know, we do have a few interests in in the Pacific and we have a few uh, responsibilities as well. We're part of the five-party defence agreement. And we have something that 
very few other countries have. We have the remarkable ability to interoperate with uh, some countries as though we were one. And although we're very, very close to the United States, the truth is that the closest alliances we have are with Canada, the United, uh, with the Australia and New Zealand. It's, it's worth remembering that uh, an officer of Her Majesty can command Her Majesty's troops without any change in law. So a British officer can command Australian troops in battle with no change in regulations, whereas an American officer has to give orders, you know, has to ask a British officer to do something, and they can, in theory, refuse. That's not so with an Australian or a Brit. They are, in theory... Don't, don't get us started on the, the empire, because we love it. We, we want it to well, come back. You know, my so commander this, in Iraq this is all just getting us excited. Well, my commander in Iraq in 2003 was an Australian. And, you know, he... he but, boosted squadron commander that was it you know and it's it's worth remembering because that means that we do have british officers on australian ships we have uh you know australians operating on british ships so having an interoperable battle group with australia new zealand and canada is absolutely something we can do and and i firmly expect us to be putting uh fleets together uh in years to come because it's in all of our interests and it offers us something that very few other countries of our size can achieve which is the ability to have strategic depth and flex. If we need more ships in the Atlantic, we can borrow uh, from Australia and New Zealand and Canada. And if we need more ships in the Pacific, then they can borrow from us uh, and from and from Canada. You know, it's a, it's a way of having depth that would otherwise be difficult to manage. I think it's it's a, a crucial point. And of course, just last week, Australia and Japan signed a defense agreement to allow for joint access uh, to bases. And so it, that just offers more opportunity for Britain to get involved uh, with its close closest ally, as well as a, a an increasingly close partner. Um, and I think Americans also, we, we, we forget that Britain has about uh, at least a million and a half um, dependents and uh, expatriates living in the region. It has territory. It has uh, partnerships through the Commonwealth stretching from the Indian Ocean into the Western Pacific. In many ways, you're as much, if not more, of a Pacific power than even the United States is because we get to Hawaii and then we've got Guam and that's about it. But for you, it really is throughout the region. And so there's, I think, an enormous amount uh, of, of opportunity there. Um, well, Tom, we've we've sort of run up against the end. I w- would love to keep talking. I know John would as well with you about this. It's fascinating. Um, again, we would encourage everyone to go to the China Research Group uh, to sign up for what you can and uh, participate in what you can. It, it's a great uh, it's not only a great collection of issues that you you discuss, but it also helps us understand how our closest friends see the region. So thank you for fighting the fight over there, for leading uh, on, on these issues. Um, I think it's going to become even more important in the coming years that we maintain a, a close uh, a close linkage on this. And I hope we can have you back sometime. So thank you for joining the Pacific Century. Thanks, Misha. It's been a great pleasure. Nice to see you too, John. Thanks, Tom. And John, so glad to have you back. We will uh, come back again soon. So say goodbye to everyone. Bye, everybody. So on behalf of John Yu again, this is Misha Oslin thanking you for joining us on The Pacific Century. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org.